You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Fourth Dimension, Sacred Geometry, Alchemy, and Mathematics, translated by Catherine Krieger. It is, I believe, uh, notes and a six-lecture course and some other lectures, so I don't have the exact number of uh, items in this, and there are also questions and answers. This is the first lecture given in Berlin on March 24, 1905. Because I will begin by discussing elementary aspects of the fourth dimension, what you hear today may disappoint you, but dealing with these issues in greater detail would require a thorough knowledge of the concepts of higher mathematics. I would first like to provide you with very general and elementary concepts. We must distinguish between the reality of four-dimensional space and the possibility of thinking about it. Four-dimensional space deals with a reality that goes far beyond ordinary sense-perceptible reality. When we enter that realm, we must transform our thinking and become familiar with the way in which mathematicians think. We must realize that at each step mathematicians take, they must account for its impact on their entire line of reasoning. When we concern ourselves with mathematics, however, we also must realize that even mathematicians cannot take a single step into four-dimensional reality. They can arrive at conclusions only from what can and cannot be thought. The subjects we will deal with are initially simple, but become more complicated as we approach the concept of the fourth dimension. We first must be clear about what we mean by dimensions. The best way to gain clarity is to check the dimensionality of various geometrical objects, which then will lead us to considerations that were first tackled in the 19th century by such great mathematicians as Bolya, Gauss, and Riemann. The simplest geometrical object is the point. It has no size. It can only be imagined. It fixes a location in space. It has a dimension which equals zero. The first dimension is given by a line. A straight line has one dimension, length. When we move a line, which has no thickness, it leaves the first dimension and becomes a plane. A plane has two dimensions, length and breadth. When we move a plane, it leaves these two dimensions, The result is a solid body with three dimensions, height, breadth, and depth. See figure 1. When you move a solid body, such as a cube, around in space, however, the result is still only a three-dimensional body. You cannot make it leave three-dimensional space by moving it. There are still a few more concepts we need to look at. Consider a straight-line segment. It has two boundaries, two endpoints, point A and B, see figure 2. Suppose we want to make point A and point B meet. To do this, we must bend the straight-line segment. 
What happens then? It is impossible to make points A and B coincide if you stay within the one-dimensional straight line. To unite these two points, we must leave the straight line, that is, the first dimension, and enter the second dimension, the plane. When we make its endpoints coincide, the straight line segment becomes a closed curve, that is, in the simplest instance, a circle. See figure 3. A line segment can be transformed into a circle only by leaving the first dimension. You can duplicate this process with a rectangular surface, but only if you do not remain in two dimensions. To transform the rectangle into a cylinder or tube, you must enter the third dimension. This operation is performed in exactly the same way as the preceding one, in which we brought two points together by leaving the first dimension. In the case of a rectangle which lies in a plane, we must move into the third dimension in order to make two of its boundaries coincide. See figure 4. Is it conceivable to carry out a similar operation with an object that already has three dimensions? Think of two congruent cubes as the boundaries of a three-dimensional rectangular solid. You can slide one of these cubes into the other. Now imagine that one cube is red on one side and blue on the opposite side. The only way to make this cube coincide with the other one, which is geometrically identical, but whose red and blue sides are reversed, would be to turn one of the cubes around and then slide them together. See figure 5. Let's consider another three-dimensional object. You cannot put a left-handed glove onto your right hand. But if you imagine a pair of gloves, which are symmetrical mirror images of each other, and then you consider the straight line segment with its end points A and B, you can see how the gloves belong together. They form a single three-dimensional figure with a, a boundary, the mirroring plane, in the middle. The same is true of the two symmetrical halves of a person's outer skin. How can two three-dimensional objects that are mirror images of each other be made to coincide? Only by leaving the third dimension, just as we left the first and second dimensions in the previous examples. A right or left-handed glove can be pulled over the left or right hand, respectively, by going through four-dimensional space. In building up depth, the third dimension of perceived space, we pull the image from our right eye over the image from our left eye. That is, we fuse the two images. Now, let's consider one of Zillner's examples. Readers aside, Zillner is spelled Z-O-Umlaut L-L-N-E-R. Zillner, end of readers aside. Here we have a circle and outside it a point P. See figure 6. How can we bring point P into the circle without cutting the circumference? We cannot do this if we remain within the plane. Just as we need to leave the second dimension and enter the third in order to make the transition from a square to a cube, we must also leave the second dimension in this example. Similarly, in the case of a sphere, it is impossible to get to the interior without either piercing the sphere's surface or leaving the third dimension. These are conceptual possibilities, 
but they are of immediate practical significance to epistemology, especially with regard to the epistemological problem of the objectivity of the contents of perception. We first must understand clearly how we actually perceive. How do we acquire knowledge about objects through our senses? We see a color. Without eyes, we would not perceive it. Physicists tell us that what is out there in space is not color, but purely spatial movement patterns that enter the eye and are then EYE and are then picked up by the visual nerve and conveyed to the brain, where the perception of the color red, for example, comes about. Next we may wonder whether the color red is present when sensation is not. We could not perceive red if we had no eyes or the sound of bells ringing if we had no ears. All of our sensations depend on movement patterns that are transformed by our psychophysical apparatus. The issue becomes even more complicated, however, when we ask where that unique quality, red, is located. Is it on the object we perceive, or is it a vibrational process? A set of movements that originates outside us, enters the eye and continues into the brain itself. Wherever we look, you find vibrational processes and nerve processes, but not the color red. You also will not find it by studying the eye itself. It is neither outside us nor in the brain. Red exists only when we ourselves as subjects intercept these movements. Is it impossible then to talk about how red comes to meet the eye or C-sharp the ear? The questions are, what is an internal mental image of this sort and where does it arise? These questions pervade all of 19th century philosophy. Schopenhauer proposed the definition, quote, the world is our mental image, close quote. But in this case, what is left for the external object? Just as a mental image of color can be, in quotes, created by movement, so too the perception of movement can come about within us as a result of something that is not moving. Suppose we glue twelve snapshots of a horse in motion to the inner surface of a cylinder equipped with twelve narrow slits between the images. When we look sideways at the turning cylinder, we get the impression that we are always seeing the same horse and that its feet are moving. Our bodily organization can induce the impression of movement when the object in question is really not moving at all. In this way, what we call movement dissolves into nothing. In that case, what is matter? If we strip matter, color, movement, shape, and all other qualities conveyed through sensory perception, nothing is left. If, in quotes, subjective sensations such as color, sound, warmth, taste, and smell, which arise in the consciousness of individuals as a result of environmental stimuli, must be sought within ourselves, so too must the primary objective sensations of shape and movement. The outer world vanishes completely. The state of affairs causes grave difficulties for epistemology. Assuming that all qualities of objects exist outside us, how do they enter us? 
Where is the point at which the outer is transformed into the inner? If we strip the outer world of all the contents of sensory perception, it no longer exists. Epistemology begins to look like Munchausen trying to pull himself up by his bootstraps. To explain sensations that arise within us, we must assume that the outer world exists. But how do aspects of this outer world get inside us and appear in the form of mental images? This question needs to be formulated differently. Let's consider several analogies that are necessary for discovering the connection between the outer world and internal sensation. Let's go back to the straight line segment with its endpoints A and B. To make these endpoints coincide, we must move beyond the first dimension and bend the line. See figure 7. Now, imagine that we make the left endpoint A of this straight line segment coincide with the right endpoint B in such a way that they meet below the original line. We can then pass through the overlapping endpoints and return to our starting point. If the original line segment is short, the resulting circle is small. But if I bend ever longer line segments into circles, the point where their endpoints meet moves farther and farther away from the original line until it is infinitely distant. The curvature becomes increasingly slight until finally the naked eye can no longer distinguish the circumference of the circle from the straight line. See figure 8. Similarly, when we walk on the earth it appears to be a straight flat surface, though it is actually round. When we imagine the two halves of the straight line segment extending to infinity, the circle really does coincide with the straight line. Thus a straight line can be interpreted as a circle whose diameter is infinitely large. Now, we can imagine that if we move ever farther along the straight line, we will eventually pass through infinity and come back from the other side. Instead of a geometric line, envision a situation that we can associate with reality. Let's imagine that point C becomes progressively cooler as it moves along the circumference of the circle and becomes increasingly distant from its starting point. When it passes the lower boundary A, B, and begins the return trip on the other side, the temperature starts to rise. See figure 9. Thus, on its return trip, point C encounters conditions that are opposite to the ones it encountered on the first half of its journey. The warming trend continues until the original temperature is reached. This process remains the same no matter how large the circle. Warmth initially decreases and then increases again. With regard to a line that stretches to infinity, the temperature decreases on one side and increases on the other. This is an example of how we bring life and movement into the world and begin to understand the world in a higher sense. Here we have two mutually dependent activities. As far as sensory observation is concerned, the process that moves to the right has nothing to do with the process that returns from the left, and yet the two are mutually dependent. 
Now, let's relate the objects of the outer world to the cooling stage and our internal sensations to the warming stage. Although the outer world and our internal sensations are not linked directly by anything perceptible to the senses, they are interrelated and interdependent in the same way as the processes I just described. In support of their interrelationship, we also can apply the metaphor of seal and sealing wax. The seal leaves an exact impression or copy of itself in the sealing wax, even though it does not remain in contact with the wax and there is no transfer of substance between them. The sealing wax retains a faithful impression of the seal. The connection between the outer world and our internal sensations is similar. Only the essential aspect is transmitted. One set of circumstances determines the other but no transfer of substance occurs. Viewing the connection between the outer world and our own impressions in this way, we realize that geometric mirror images in space are like right and left-handed gloves. To make them coincide directly with a continuous motion, we need the help of a new dimension of space. If the relationship between the outer world and an internal impression is analogous to the relationship between figures that are geometric mirror images, the outer world and the internal impression also can be made to coincide directly only by means of an additional dimension. To establish a connection between the outer world and internal impressions, we must pass through a fourth dimension where we are still in the third. Only there, where we are united with the outer world and inner impressions, can we discover their commonalities. We can imagine mirror images floating in a sea in which they can be made to coincide. Thus we arrive, though initially purely on the level of thinking, at something that is real but transcends three-dimensional space. To do this we need to enliven our ideas of space. Oscar Simony attempted to use models to depict enlivened spatial formations. As we have seen, we can move step by step from considering zero dimension to imagining four-dimensional space. Four-dimensional space can be recognized most easily with the help of mirror image figures or symmetrical relationships. Knotted curves and two-dimensional strips offer another method of studying the unique qualities of empirical three-dimensional space as it relates to four-dimensional space. What do we mean by symmetrical relationships? When we interlink spatial figures, certain complications arise. These complications are unique to three-dimensional space. They do not occur in four-dimensional space. Let's try a few practical thought exercises. When we cut along the middle of a cylindrical ring, we get two such rings. If we give a strip a 180-degree twist before gluing its ends, cutting it down the middle results in a single twisted ring that will not come apart. If we give the strip a 360-degree twist before gluing its ends, the ring falls apart into two twisted interlocking rings when we cut it. And finally, if we give the strip a 720-degree twist, cutting it results in a knot, 
Anyone who thinks about natural processes knows that such twists occur in nature. In reality, all such twisted spatial formations possess specific forces. Take, for example, the movement of the earth around the sun, and then the movement of the moon around the earth. We say that the moon describes a circle around the earth, but if we look more closely, we realize that it actually describes a line that is twisted around the circle of the earth's orbit, that is, a spiral around a circle. And then we also have the sun, which moves so quickly through space that the moon makes an additional spiral movement around it. Thus the force lines extending through space are very complex. We must realize that we are dealing with complicated spatial concepts that we can understand only if we do not try to pin them down, but instead allow them to remain fluid. Let's review what we discussed today. Zero dimension is the point, the first dimension is the line, the second dimension is the surface, and the third dimension is the solid body. How do these spatial concepts relate to one another? Imagine that you are a being who can move only along a straight line. What kind of spatial images do one-dimensional beings have? Such beings would be able to perceive only points, and not their own one-dimensionality, because when we attempt to draw something within a line, points are the only option. A two-dimensional being would be able to encounter lines and thus to distinguish one-dimensional beings. A three-dimensional being, such as a cube, would perceive two-dimensional beings. Human beings, however, can perceive three dimensions. If we draw the right conclusions, we must say that just as a one-dimensional being can perceive only points, a two-dimensional being only one dimension, and a three-dimensional being only two dimensions, a being that perceives three dimensions must be a four-dimensional being. Because we can delineate external beings in three dimensions and manipulate three-dimensional spaces, we must be four-dimensional beings. Just as a cube can perceive only two dimensions and not its own third dimension, it is also true that we human beings cannot perceive the fourth dimension in which we live. The end of Lecture 1